We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Scott Talk Radio, the world for people who think. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Star Talk Radio. This is Neil Bradley, your host, with Joe Quinn tonight. Hi there. And Pierre Lescaudron. Bonjour. So, this week, we are speaking with the legendary Brazilian journalist Pepe Escobar, roving correspondent for Asia Times, analyst for RT, and a frequent contributor to many websites and radio shows across the world. He's traveled all over the world and is the author of three books, Globalist Dan, How the Globalized World is Dissolving into Liquid War, Red Zone Blues, a Snapshot of Baghdad During the Surge, and Obama Does Globalistan. Joining us from the People's Republic of Pipelinistan, welcome Pepe Escobar. Hi, everybody. I hope uh, we're going to have an interesting conversation. And I'm talking from a very different battlefield today. I'm actually in Brazil four days before the beginning of the World Cup. Yeah. <laughs> Where? For geopolitics, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah? Are you there to report on, on the big event of the year? or? No, I'm not reporting. I'm going to write a few articles for Asia Times and RT, but basically I wanted to see the World Cup here, which is a once-in-a-lifetime experience, in fact. Mm-hmm. Where are you in Brazil? I am in Sao Paulo. I was in Rio uh, a few days ago. I'm in Sao Paulo. I'll be in Bahia next weekend, and then uh, God only knows. <laughs> yeah, and there's been a, a lot of demonstration in Sao Paulo against the World Cup. What's your take on the current uh, popular movement? Look, I, I spent an, an absolutely demented day uh, on Thursday. Uh, there was a metro strike. Uh, it was raining. It was Complete chaos, 209 kilometers of traffic jams in Sao Paulo. And I did an experiment. I tried to go from downtown Sao Paulo to the Itaqueron Stadium, where the World Cup is going to start in four days, uh, just speaking English. Uh (laughs) And it's an absolute nightmare. (laughs) Why were you just speaking English as as an experiment? Because I was trying to impersonate a foreign tourist. Ah, to see what, see what happened. <laughs> exactly. And I knew it would be an absolute mess because people are wonderful. You know, I got help from, you know, everybody you can imagine. But sign language, you know, uh, yeah. <laughs> one of the yeah. words. So I was imagining <laughs> a Croat uh, tourist next week. Uh, the English contingent, in fact, which is going to be here for England against Uruguay. Mm-hmm. And then in the finals, if there is a metro strike and they are faced with the same uh, situation, it's going to be an absolute nightmare for them. Um, so um, this, this was my point. And then uh, I went, of course, uh, <laughs> I was <laughs> diversifying and I got a crash course on uh, urban mobility in Sao Paulo. People were lecturing me about... Uh, uh, corruption everywhere in uh, you know municipal government, uh, federal government, you name it. So it was a, it was an outstanding experience, in fact. 
Well, what do you think about that? I mean, they've been in, the, in Europe here, they've been given a lot of um, dire warnings to travelers that, you know, about how to, how to kind of handle themselves when they're at the World Cup because they're going to be robbed left, right, and center. They're going to be held up at gunpoint, you know. This, these... this, to an extent, this is true, in, uh, especially Rio and Sao Paulo. I was in Europe until a few days ago. It's the same thing. I, 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 I was following from Asia, then from Europe. And I'm here in the thick of the action. It's true. Uh, if, you, if you speak a foreign language, Brazil is very monocultural. Mm-hmm. Everybody speaks Portuguese. Uh, the bulk of the population, they don't speak, a, a, there's no second language. Even Spanish is complicated for them. Mm-hmm. So for, for the bad guys, if they hear a foreign accent in the street, you are a target. Mm-hmm. Uh, I saw that happening in real last week. I was walking on the beach, and a guy was robbed like... Well, like behind me, in fact, because he was speaking something. I think it was. Uh, I think it was Italian, in fact. And the soccer authorities ask for a ceasefire. They ask the people, Brazilian people, to stop demonstrating during the World Cup. Do you think uh, it will oh, work? Yes. I was. I was discussing this uh, yesterday night. In fact, uh, a lot of. Uh, you know, the guys who run the drug business in the favelas in Rio, for instance, a lot of money changed hands these past few weeks. There's no question. There is a truth. The problem in Sao Paulo is much more complicated because Sao Paulo is a, it's a sprawl. Like in Rio, you have the favelas in the middle of the city. In fact, if they, could, if they wanted to take over Rio, they could do it in a few hours, in fact. Mm-hmm. They don't. They want to stay in the favelas, and they don't want the federal government or the, the, the state uh, government to harass them. So mm. uh, as long as they are kept uh, you know, in their places, it's fine for them. In Sao Paulo, it's more complicated. The city is, in fact, much more violent than Rio, mm. and it's sprawl. Uh, people get mugged in, down, in uh, downtown Sao Paulo, which you know, parts of it, you, you could be in Chicago in New York, and you get mugged, robbed, stabbed. You know, it, it's, it's completely crazy because there are different gangs operating all over the sprawl. Most of them are in the suburbs of Sao Paulo, which is a, a sprawl that goes on for 50, 60, 70 kilometers uh, in all directions. And it's, uh, the conditions are worse than in sub-Saharan Africa, in fact, parts of it, in fact. Uh, at the same time, you find people who are you know, they're trying to get an education. They're trying to get better services. They, tr- uh, they try to be treated as uh, citizens, in fact, and not uh, just as, uh, you know, the excluded from, from the banquet. And they, ultimately, they resort to violence because there's, you know, there's, not, there's no political articulation yet among these groups. Uh, people, you know, there's a lot of resentment uh, in terms of the inequality. Everybody knows that Brazil even though the seventh economy in the world is one of the most unequal countries on earth. And this hasn't changed over the past 10 years, even with this new miracle of the new middle class in Brazil, which is the same as the new middle class in China and India and Russia, the BRICS. But still the inequalities are terrible because the old money in Brazil has always been extremely corrupt. The new money in the Lula years and now the Dilma years is even worse than the old money, in fact, in terms of corrupt, corruption, in terms of arrogance. It's a mix of ignorance and arrogance, which is absolutely horrible. Mm. And, of course, the myth that Brazil is a racial paradise, complete bullshit. This is a, there's a lot of 
prejudices against blacks in this country all over. Uh, you only succeed if you are a famous footballer, of course, or a famous musician. Otherwise, you're going to be in deep trouble in terms of educational opportunities, in terms of social mobility, especially, in terms of circulating in the posh areas in the big cities. Hmm. It's dreadful. Uh, not much has changed, in fact, over the past few decades. So in terms of the people protesting against the World Cup, you, you would support their, I mean, how do you, where do you fall on that? Do you think the World Cup is a good thing or do you think it should be, they should have been kicked out long ago and the money given to the poor people? Look, I arrived here only a few days ago and I've been out of Brazil for a long time. I oh, yeah? For over 30 years. I left Brazil in 85 to give and, you an idea. And you never went back? No, of course. I come back and I stay a few weeks yeah. or something. Okay. So, but I don't follow the social reality in the country. Mm -hmm. So yesterday at night, I was with a couple of friends, and they were giving me a crash course on what's been happening here lately, especially uh, different leaderships in terms of protesting against the World Cup. Uh, the difference between, for instance, protests by the landless peasant movement and the homeless uh, urban movement as well. Their reivindications are completely different, of course. Uh, you know, uh, black leadership in the, in, uh, in the slums of Sao Paulo or in the periphery of Sao Paulo as well, different reivindications. Um, social workers, uh, transport uh, workers as well. So it's a mix of... Uh, uh, they, uh, they, they became... Uh, let's say, middle class these past few years, but the opportunities for most of these sectors are virtually nil. And in fact, some of them have resorted to violence, but this is a minority. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. There is a, a black bloc, in, especially in Sao Paulo, very, very active, like the black blocs in Europe, but it's a minority of a few hundred, they tell me, in fact. In fact, during this week, I plan to get in touch with them to talk to them directly. Uh, but uh, in, in terms of the, the lower middle class, in, especially in the suburbs of the big, big cities in Sao Paulo, uh, it's completely different from the U.S., in fact. Here, the, the, the suburbs in Brazil means the lower middle class and the urban proletariat, unlike the U.S., for instance, <laughs> where mm -hmm. it goes to, because, for instance, the suburbs is where the wealthy classes are. Here's the, the complete opposite. So these people are still trying to organize themselves politically. So they are protesting against not the World Cup per se, but the corruption inbuilt in the FIFA federal government arrangements. And the sectors that really profited from it, especially, were the big Brazilian construction companies. So these are the people who made all the money these past seven years. Brazil, uh, you all know that Brazil was awarded the World Cup seven years ago, and mm -hmm. nothing, nothing has been done. They left everything Brazilians down to the last minute. So you know, I, I went to the Itaquerão Stadium on Thursday. I managed to get there in the end, and I took a pic that showed that you know it's. I would say at least twenty twenty five percent of the whole thing is not ready yet. They're running another test today on Sunday, and it's still not ready. It's absolutely crazy. They spent, I think it was $450 million for this stadium. Uh, so you, 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 you look at it, it looks like a stadium in Germany, in Bavaria, you know. But when you look at the details and when you look at what's around it, it's Africa. It's uh, 
Peter, because in a few kilometers away from uh, the stadium, there's this enormous building that it's been squatted by the homeless uh, urban movement in Sao Paulo, mm. like thousand people, you know. So, you know, if within literally almost walking distance, you see the inequalities in Brazil in your face. Hmm. Bread and circuses. So there's definitely fertile ground for this widespread social protest movement. I wonder, though, can you comment on something that Turkey's Prime Minister said recently? I'll just read it out here. So Prime Minister Erdogan of Turkey says, the same game that's being played in Turkey is now being played over in Brazil. The symbols are the same. The posters are the same. Twitter, Facebook are the same. The international media is the same. They are being led from the same center. They are doing their best to achieve in Brazil what they could not achieve in Turkey. He further stated that the two protests were the same game, the same trap, with the same aim. What do you make of that? Look, uh, there is an element of truth in what Erdogan said, but it's much more complicated than that. Of course, the protests, uh, they were completely... Um, um, the, the, the right-wingers in Brazil, essentially, they co-opted the protests after a while. In the beginning, they were... You remember the protests one year ago? We were yeah. talking about hundreds of thousands of people in the streets. These were really, really serious. And it started, uh, the thing that started uh, the protest was very, very, it's straight to the point of what I saw this past uh, Thursday, urban mobility, the transportation system, corruption in the transportation system that, you know, people uh, are stranded in the middle of nowhere for hours or they, they, they spend four or five hours in, 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 uh, every day just commuting. And Obviously, this is because of the transportation companies, corruption, the way they, they function uh, with every government, uh, bribing every government, especially municipal and uh, uh, state governments, uh, because of a raise in the, and a 20 cent raise for people who make uh, the minimum wage here is around $300, less than $300. That's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. So this was the beginning of the protest. Later on, in the, so the, in the beginning, there were vandals. Then the so-called uh, right-wing opposition here in Brazil, which, which is a bunch of extremely corrupt parties, by the way, they said, oh, no, no, it's true, because the government is horrible. They should provide a better transportation. So, yes, we support them, because they noticed as well that most of the protesters were middle class, in fact. They were not... The exclude only the excluded from the the periphery. You know, the middle class was protesting not only against uh, uh, this uh, bus race, the bus fare race, but also against corruption in all echelons of government. In fact, which is true uh, with the Workers Party, corruption in Brazil, political corruption in Brazil, basically changed hands. That, that's, the, he, that's the number one problem. And in Turkey, in fact, when, when you look at Erdogan's uh, AKP machine, it's not very much different. Erdogan, the protest in Jesse Park, where you, you remember very well, was about mm -hmm. uh, turning Jesse Park into a shopping mall, essentially, with a mosque and all that. Uh, so, and, in, and then the middle classes in Istanbul itself, which is a, 
uh, uh, Erdogan was trying to turn into one of his uh, fiefdoms, not only Anatolia. He wanted to conquer Istanbul, be the sultan of Istanbul as well with his mega projects. They started protesting about why these mega projects were not discussed in public. Because obviously a lot of money changed hands in Istanbul as well. For the, the greater Istanbul is basically an enormous real estate racket. This is what one of my best friends in Istanbul, an outstanding historian, explained to me last year after, after, after the beginning of the protests. So what Erdogan says, uh, I, I, I see it as a kind of a BRICS NATO narrative which is true. A lot of the mainstream media in the U.S. and in Europe, they are framing the protests as, uh, you know, this country is not serious. Obviously, uh, they should never have been awarded a World Cup in the Olympics. not going to work. It should be here in the civilized first world, right? So, of course, there's, uh, there's a lot of profiteering for uh, the, the so-called established powers in the Northern Hemisphere. But at the same time, the protests are absolutely legitimate in Brazil. Absolutely. From all these uh, different social sectors we were talking about a few minutes ago. Yeah. They are. They are just bad everywhere. Yeah. Really. <laughs> um, I mean, we wouldn't want to let Erdogan off the hook either. Um, you do wonder, though, to what extent what he's saying is true. I mean, Assad claimed the same thing with good reason that this was something being projected onto his country. Exactly. The different thing in Syria is that there's, a civil, uh, there's no civil war yet in Turkey or in Brazil. But in Syria, it's a three, three and a half year civil war. And it's crazy because this is something that I, 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 I had been writing about for months, in fact, for over two years. Uh, uh, Assad would never lose because the business classes in both Damascus and Aleppo, they never wanted regime change, period. So unless there was a coup, a Western-instigated coup in Damascus, just like it happened in uh, Kiev, he would never lose that war. So, uh, I, look, I've been to Syria a few times, and it's an absolutely horrible police state. But there is no alternative. That's why it's so tragic for the Syrians themselves. And they, they admit it. They say, look, the, the only thing we have here is Assad. If there's no Assad, it's total chaos. Or we're going to have these, uh, uh, used to be the Bandar Bush gang, right? The beheaders, uh, mm -hmm. uh, Islamic State of Iraq mm -hmm. and, and all that, which are now being armed. Uh, and now the, the U.S. recognize that they are sending lethal weapons to these people. We all knew that for what? Exactly. Over but now the U.S. now is admitting on the record that they are sending no, lethal aid and not only non-lethal, right? Mm. Yeah, they, they always do that. They, they bring the narrative up to speed once conditions are right for it or it suits whatever the next stage in the well, game plan is. Well, what I can't get over in Syria, even with, now with this admission that this is what they're doing, uh, uh, the fact that they admit and everybody is supposed to know that uh, Al-Qaeda, in quotes, uh, are in Syria. And, I mean, seriously, if they're sending lethal aid to Syria and, you know, a major part of the so-called um, revolutionaries are officially Al-Qaeda, 
I mean, how the American people aren't a little bit pissed off <laughs> that <laughs> the people that attacked them on 9-11 supposedly are now being funded by their own government. It's just, I don't know, I think it's just evidence that the American people long ago just switched off and don't know what's going on at all and don't care. Exactly. It's a mix of both. It's a mix of extreme uh, uh, misinformation or disinformation or apathy. They are like drones. And in fact, uh, don't forget that uh, we can say that the bulk of the American middle class now, their number one pre preoccupation is economic survival. Mm -hmm. They lose their job. In one month, they, they become homeless, literally, literally. I've seen that for myself when I was covering uh, the elections in the U.S. before, uh, you know, a year and a half ago or so. It's, it's, it's you know, uh, around uh, two or three blocks outside of uh, uh, Las Vegas Boulevard, for instance, you know, right in the middle of the, of the consumer dream, let's put it this way. Or in New York, downtown San Francisco, places that I would never imagine, you know. Uh, in L.A., in uh, parts of Hollywood in L.A., the same thing. And people are absolutely desperate. Uh, this is what you don't read in the L.A. Times, in the New York Times, of course, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and it's the same thing as, as in Europe. Like, I go to Europe a lot from Asia, and I have family in Europe, etc. Uh, in Spain... Uh, Youth unemployment, it's over 50%. Mm. It's absolutely dreadful. You, you can go to you know, some of the best universities in Barcelona, in Madrid, or to technical colleges, etc. No jobs. In Italy, it's approaching 47% youth unemployment. Same thing. And in, in Paris, it's crazy. Everywhere you go in Paris, you see homeless people. Like some, sometimes I think that I am in Sao Paulo, in fact. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely tragic. And the austerity, everybody, every average Western European, I'm not talking about the Eastern Europeans because they, they, uh, their wishful thinking is that there's going to be an economic miracle for them. Forget it. Mm. For Hungarians, Czechs, forget it. It's going to happen. But in Western Europe, or especially in the club mad countries, Everybody knows what austerity means, and they are absolutely desperate. Uh, you, you see, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the head of the family, if they have a house, uh, they already pay their mortgage. You see sometimes three generations under one roof because it's the only way to make ends meet. Mm -hmm. Because at least 80% uh, uh, of this family is unemployed, in fact. And the, the problem is that uh, while the poor are getting more and more poor, the richest ones are getting more and more rich. The, the chasm, the inequality keep growing. It's not so hard to be poor when everybody's poor. But when you see uh, some billionaires, some idiot accumulating wealth uh, on your back. Or when you've had relative wealth and it's taken away from you, that's the hardest, you know. But just speaking about Spain, uh, today in Spain, um, there were a lot of protests in Madrid and Barcelona uh, about, uh, about the monarchy. Um, a lot of people weren't rid of the monarchy because, you know, Juan Carlos advocated a few, a few days ago, mm -hmm. last week, and uh, so Felipe, the son, is going to be shunted in the, the power there to keep the masses happy, you know. Uh, well, they're poor, but at least you've got a king, you know, and uh, Spanish people aren't too happy about it, you know, at least some of them. Well, the, uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure the masses are going to be yeah. happy. I would say the monarchists, of course, which is a substantial bulk of the population. We cannot forget that Spain is intrinsically an extremely conservative country. Mm -hmm. 
course, uh, don't forget there are still a lot of Franquistas in yeah. Spain. And they love uh, the association between Franco and the monarchy that went for decades as mm. well. It's nostalgic. We're still very dangerous, and they control some important levers of the economy as well. I would say young people in Spain, they are overwhelmingly against the monarchy. They mm. want to re- but I'm not sure. I'm not sure if they still have the numbers yeah. at the moment. Yeah. We have a question here on our. Uh, we have a chat room going. A question from a listener. He said, um, or she said, uh, a question for you, Pepe. Have you heard about Snowden asking for asylum in Brazil? And what's oh. your uh, Snowden? Absolutely. That's a very good question. And what's, the, what's your opinion on the whole Snowden issue? Because there's stuff come out recently about whether or not he's legitimate or not. In fact, the day I arrived here, the day before, I actually watched the, the interview that he gave to Brazilian TV. He talked to NBC, he talked to RT, uh, and he, talked to, he gave an exclusive interview to Brazilian TV, a half an hour interview, where he was, for all practical purposes, begging the Brazilian government give him asylum. Yeah. I, I was startled, in fact, because uh, all the information that we had before this interview, in fact, that, is that, uh, you know, he, he liked uh, his routine uh, in Russia. He yeah. was probably yeah. to renew uh, his visa application for another year would be no problems. Uh, he has no problems living in Moscow. And then we have this bombshell, in fact. So uh, he rationalized it, saying, look, uh, from the beginning, I wanted to come to South America. In fact, I had a book, a book ticket to Ecuador via Cuba. Mm. When I arrived at the airport, my, pa- my passport had been canceled. Okay, it's true. And he requested asylum uh, to uh, Caracas, to Quito, and he said to Brasilia. But the Brazilian government said, no, we never received an application. So it's a very murky story, in fact. Yeah, I wonder if he's just... I wonder why he's not happy with Russia anymore. I mean, has he fallen out with Putin or... Yeah, I wonder... That's a very good question. Uh, uh, I I like conspiracy theories. (laughs) After all, if if you want to report on international relations, you you have to try to stick to facts. Mm -hmm. Even if the facts are very hard to to find sometimes. But... uh, uh, so I have this, I have been discussing this with some people, and uh, he, some of my American friends, in, fr- in fact, tell me, look, he's still a CIA agent. He's a disinformation agent. Mm-hmm. I don't have facts to back that up. I consider their points of view, of course, uh, but w- w- we still cannot establish it. Cert- certainly, you cannot establish it because he worked for the CIA. He also worked for the NCA. We all know that the CIA and the NSA, they hate each other. So he could still be a CIA agent. He could still be an NSA agent. He could still be a double agent. Or he could be what he says he is, uh, well, a consciousness objector. Well, one way to find out would be to let the, let, the, let the Americans get their hands on him and see if he goes to prison or not. Maybe he goes to prison. <laughs> exactly. And... You saw what happened to Glenn Greenwald. I was absolutely sure that he would be arrested when he went to America. Mm. In the end, so maybe Omidyar himself, you know, called the White House or the Justice Department. Mm. (laughs) Leave my guy out of this. (laughs) Yeah, that's all but suspicious with uh, Greenwald. Although it's hard to reconcile it with the kind of stuff that he's done, you know. But uh, if you assume that he has some kind of 
you know, kind of government or spy agency connections. I mean, he is some kind of a deep cover agent, you know, uh, selling, you know, plausible, uh, you know, uh, whistleblowing details to the public, then that would suggest that there's a lot worse that they're trying to cover up, you know? Absolutely. And, uh, well, uh, facts, once again. What he revealed, everybody knew it already. What he revealed were operational details. The best part of uh, the... In fact, the documents themselves, they are not such a big deal. The revelation of the operational details of this uh, Orwellian panopticon complex, these were really, really interesting, of course. But uh, it was not so damning. Everybody, like, even, even here in Brazil, people joke, ah, you bought an, uh, an iPhone. Everybody knows uh, in Langley what, what you've been doing. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 <laughs> world you know people have much more of a sense of humor in the in the developing world in BRICS countries when they're confronted what uh, the US uh, the West shenanigans in fact don't forget that here for instance there was a military coup in 64 mm-hmm. that was completely remote controlled in DC so people don't forget these things in uh, in the developing world yeah yeah the same as in to some extent as in Europe and stuff that's what we were saying uh, not so long ago that uh, the problem with the U.S. is that the U.S. has never known uh, a war uh, on its own soil, really, in the past, you know, what, 200, yeah. 200 years. So the people there have no history. There's no kind of communal or collective, you know, cultural history of, of war and soldiers and what soldiers can do. So American people can are free to indulge a fantasy of our wonderful, you know, freedom giving troops and, you know, uh, going around the world freeing everybody. They just have no understanding of even a cultural understanding of, of what war is like and what soldiers are forced to do and what they do, you know? It's true, and the way the myth is propagated all over, uh, officially, by official channels, uh, by the media, and by Hollywood, it's, it's, a, it's a 24-7. It's mm-hmm. a myth. I, I lived in the West in both coasts, and I travel a lot in the West. Uh, my, uh, my fascination with the U.S. is uh, basically uh, the outcast. You know, it's it's a very Bob Dylanish thing. You know, the mm-hmm. out, the guy who the guys who are not in the official picture. Yeah. You know, I have a, a fascination with with the beauty, the geological beauty of the country itself. And uh, but officially, of course, I was because I was raised uh, in the shadow of a military coup, in fact, and because I, I was always transiting between uh, Brazil and Europe. Uh, your outlook is very, very cynical towards American foreign policy. In, in the case of a journalist, in fact, this, this, it, it's, it's, it's a formative thing for a journalist. So you, you learn how to contest the official narrative in every aspect because you know they are lying. <laughs> yeah. Now you know they are lying. Sometimes you, you can prove it. Like during the run up towards the Iraq war. It was very easy to prove it at the time. Mm. Sometimes you can't. You know, it's shadow wars, covert operations, etc. Destabilizations of governments uh, in Indonesia, for instance, or parts of Latin America. But you know they are lying. Of course, all governments lie, but in terms of the empire, you know, it's, it's a 24-7 lie for the past 50 years. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of Hollywood myths, you wrote an article on... August 30th, 2001. I'm just going to read a little bit here. Osama bin Laden 
number one target of the CIA's counterterrorism center, is now a superstar playing the bad guy in some sort of Hollywood fiction, planetary Hollywood fiction. Yet, inside Afghanistan today, where the Saudi Arabian lives in exile, Osama is a minor character. He is ill and always in hiding, somewhere near Kabul. Once in a while, he travels incognito to Peshawar. His organization, Al-Qaeda, is split and in tatters. The Taliban owe him a lot for his past deeds towards the movement and in putting them in power in Afghanistan, contributing with a stack of his own personal fortune of millions of dollars. But no longer an asset, he has become a liability. So, Ten days later, 9-11. Yeah, how could such a guy carry out 9-11? Exactly. He, uh, he, look, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> it's very funny to hear you reading that story. I, I would say 90% of what I wrote still stands, in fact. And this, essentially, this, the bulk of the information, the story, I got it in Pakistan, from the Pakistanis themselves, from people in the tribal areas, and then from Masood himself when I interviewed him. Masood told me the same thing. Look, Osama is dangerous. Uh, Al-Qaeda, it's not such a big deal, but uh, depending on the connections they have, they could do something. This was only a few days before he was killed, which was two days before 9-11. Yeah. But he was framing the whole thing as a regional fight between his forces and Al-Qaeda's forces in Afghanistan. He said, look, that's it. They're not going to take over Central Asia or the Middle East and all that. It's a very small group. It's a, it's a fringe thing. It's not such a big deal. So uh, how could they pull off 9-11? You know, it still doesn't make sense. still doesn't make sense at all. Yeah. And you go on to write that um, uh, kind of the news you were breaking was that you were hearing from people in Pakistan that they were expecting any day now a U.S. military operation of some sort, probably a covert operation, to come in and deal with this Osama bin Laden character. Isn't it just so strange that, I mean, people there were actually expecting something coming, but they had no idea in what form it would come. In the end, it was a full-scale war. Exactly. You know, you know, it's something very important, which I, I, I don't think I wrote in that particular article. Musharraf vetoed the plan himself. This is something that I learned later on in Islamabad. There was a plan for a, an infiltration. It would go on in late summer. This means a few days before 9-11 or perhaps in the early weeks in September. And Musharraf vetoed because he said, look, if I do this and I let the Americans come through here and infiltrate Pakistan, I'm going to have a civil war in my own country. And he was right, because the whole Pashtun belt would start a civil war against them. There's absolutely no question. And, and even other regions in Pakistan, he knew it. He knew it. So uh, it's, it's very interesting, because at the same time that he was vetoing this uh, covert operation, 9-11 happened, and Massoud was killed. This, Massoud being killed was very important for Hamid Karzai, which was already the hand-picked American leader. I remember when I was there, all the Afghans were absolutely sure that the king would be back, King Zahir Shah, who was in exile in Rome for decades as well. They were absolutely sure. 
because of, after, afterwards they were saying, look, Masud was our nationalist leader. He was killed. There's nobody else to replace him. So the king will come back and he'll be a unifying force. But the Americans already had the Karzai brothers. And in fact, they had Abdul Haq. I don't know if you remember Abdul Haq, mm-hmm. who later killed by the Taliban, in fact, in one dodgy operation in eastern Afghanistan. This was, uh, I think, what, a month or so after 9-11. Yeah, this was in uh, mid-o- mid-October, I think. Uh, Abdul Haq was the number one uh, plan A for the Americans. So he was killed. Okay, plan B was the Karzai brothers. So they convinced everybody else, the Europeans. Uh, they set up that uh, sham uh, conference in Bonn when they already had the results in hand. Okay, we want Karzai. So Karzai was, uh, you know, forced <laughs> on the Afghans. In fact, so his uh, very few people knew. You know how they called uh, Karzai in uh, in Kabul? In fact, I remember the kebab seller because he. <laughs> <laughs> ran a, a chain of restaurants. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, <laughs> one question, uh, Pepe. If yes. Osama bin Laden is not the one who committed 9-11, uh, if the U.S. authorities framed bin Laden and by extension Afghanistan, it means therefore that Afghanistan was target. So why was Afghanistan at this time a target of uh, U.S. Uh, imperialism? Oh my God, that's an. I, I would need days to answer your question, <laughs> because and most of it would be speculative. I, I would hate to go in, in that direction. In fact, well, uh, maybe I can help you with is it. A lot, has it got anything to do with the one trillion dollars in rare earth materials uh, that it, they actually announced? That they found this a few years ago, but it was in the news again recently about one trillion dollars worth of you know stuff for computer parts and yeah it has to do with resource wars there's no question uh, one angle is the the mineral wars of mm. course the other angle is uh, oil famous uh, it will never uh, happen in fact uh, pipeline uh, tapping Turkmenistan Afghanistan Pakistan India then it became top India pulled out and now it's uh, less than T because nobody wants to invest what $10 billion in a war zone. It's completely ridiculous. <laughs> and on top of it, this is one of the craziest stories in international relations these past few, these past 20 years, in fact. Because the original idea for the Clinton administration, okay, let's go there, we're going to buy off the Taliban, and we build a pipeline to India, which is one of our allies. But the Taliban wanted a commission. The commission at the time was $50 million, which is totally ridiculous, a year. And the Americans were saying, no, this is too much. So they were haggling from uh, 1997 to 2001, actually, a few days before 9-11. They were still haggling about this commission. And the Americans were losing patience. They said, oh, let's go over there and bomb these people. So they wanted to bomb the, the Taliban even before 9-11. Because of TAPI, because the TAPI negotiation. They wanted to build that pipeline, which was another way to bypass, once again, the same story, Russia and Iran, and have a lot of gas for India, very close ally uh, of the United States. So, yes, there are two angles, mm-hmm. wars and energy wars. And geopolitically, uh, 
they were not thinking of taking over Afghanistan because they thought that the Taliban would keep that country as a whole. They didn't. In fact, the Taliban at the time of 9-11, they were controlling, what, 85% of the country, roughly. But all the north and the northeast, the deep north and the northeast, north of the Panjir Valley, Badakhshan, was still controlled by Massoud or Tajiks allied with Massoud. The Taliban would never control the whole of uh, Afghanistan. Mm. The Americans it could. And that's why the Americans support, uh, supported the takeover of Kabul in 1996. You, you should remember that. It's very important. Uh, can you imagine the U.S. Uh, covertly supporting a regime that was only supported all over the world by Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, and the Emirates? So it was basically a crazy Wahhabi-style seventh uh, century Islam kind of a so-called government. <laughs> I, I, I had, the, I would say, the chance to travel Talibanistan from one border to another. I started in the uh, Pakistani-Afghanistani border in Torkham, and I finished in Islam Kila, the border with Iran. So I saw for myself what that was. That, that, in fact, every nightmare that you may have about the 7th century, in fact, <laughs> it was actually playing live in <laughs> Afghanistan. You know. And obviously in Washington, they said, cool, as long as we can get our pipeline. <laughs> so, okay, let me, let me suggest a kind of a, a, a broader answer, and it brings it, brings it back to Russia. Um, I mean, you mentioned resource war and energy war, and this has all happened, obviously, since the fall or the collapse of the Soviet Union, and um, yeah, I suppose from the American point of view, an opportunity for plunder and resource war and resource grab, but they also have this, had this plan or have this plan to, uh, to do something about Russia because of its size, because of its resources, because of its historical you know, power and role in the world as a as, as the other major world power, and it actually um, it just brings up something that I, I, I in your book I read in your book um, uh, Obama does Globalistan, where uh, you give the answer for why they bombed why NATO bombed Yugoslavia, and that was basically to break up Yugoslavia so they could spread uh, NATO closer to Russia's borders, which is kind of what the big problem is today. The new kind of like. Russia versus the, the West, uh, the renewed kind of Cold War is, is, has that at the center of it, um, NATO pushing towards Russia's borders. But you say that Yugoslavia in the late 90s was bombed by NATO, uh, apparently with this plan in mind. So it seems that you're saying that back uh, in the 90s, right after, not long after the Soviet Union fell, uh, the Americans had this plan ultimately to deal with Russia and to get as much energy as possible. Yes, uh, yes, absolutely. I, I think the first chapter of uh, NATO's expansion in the Balkans and Eastern Europe and all the way to Russia's uh, western borderlands, in fact, uh, Georgia, Ukraine, etc., was Yugoslavia. There's absolutely no question. Uh, and then this was, uh, rem- remember that at the time was Clinton and Yeltsin in power. Yeltsin was absolutely powerless to contradict what the U.S. was doing. And Clinton was an expansionist as well, Uh, an expansionist with a smile, of course, but still very, very dangerous. Uh, And then during the 2000s, when Putin was elected in 2000, I was was covering Putin's uh, first election in 2000 in Moscow. 
And the Russians were telling me at the time, look, it's going to change. This guy's not going to be a Yeltsin too. Yeah, he's a, a nationalist, and uh, you know Russia has been broken during the 90s. Uh, there's going to be a resurgence. It's going to take a while. Look, it took only a decade. It's not much. Huh? Uh, Putin, Medvedev, and now another Putin term. Probably he's going to have a, a second term after that. And that's why NATO starts freaking out, because they said, no, now with Yugoslavia, we expand... Uh, uh, through the former Yugoslavia, uh, Hungary, Romania, blah, blah, and one day or another we're going to be in Ukraine. So Putin, <laughs> it was exactly the counterpunch that they, they, they were never expecting, in fact, in, uh, in Washington and in Brussels. Absolutely no question. Uh, there was a first uh, the, Georgia, the Georgia, the mini Georgia war in 2008 was a first, okay, they tried the pride of, okay, maybe we can have an opening with Georgia here. And the Russian, you remember the Russian response. So they tried again in Ukraine with an orange revolution, which is the same thing as a war, but through NED, Freedom House, uh, NGOs, you name it. It also didn't work. And now they're trying the hardcore stuff, which is, okay, we provoke a coup, we install our puppet over there. Poroshenko is, uh, come on, Poroshenko is another oligarch. He's as corrupt as Yanukovych. But the only difference is from a different oligarchic clan. Mm-hmm. That's the only difference. But, and, and the difference, of course, that Yanukovych was trying to, he was corrupt, uh, uh, especially with his dealings with the Russians, just like Timoshenko. But he, he was trying some dialogue with the West, but he was not convinced. In fact, he... He refused the association agreement, the political association agreement, for two reasons. Number one, there was a, a chapter that imposed uh, subscribing to NATO military protocol. He said, no, I simply cannot sign that because I know what the Russians <clears throat> are doing. And number two, it was inbuilt in it the destruction of Ukrainian industry because the Europeans would go there and take over everything, not to mention... Uh, invade Ukraine with cheap, probably Eastern, Eastern European made, in fact. So obviously he didn't sign for two, these two reasons. But he never, he never said, look, I will never sign it. He wanted to renegotiate it. Uh, as corrupt as incompetent as he was, he was trying for a bridge, for Ukraine to become a bridge between Brussels and Moscow. In the meantime, obviously there was the putsch. After that, then we have uh, Yat, uh, the king of Nulandistan, in fact, <laughs> of the Americans, in fact, and uh, surrounded by the Svoboda people, which is an extremely nasty bunch, and the recently formed uh, right sector, which is basically a neo-Nazi militia. There's no other way to describe it. When that happened, Russian intel- this is this is one of the best info that we got from Moscow and I I I bought it because I think that the, the facts speak for themselves you know it, it's not a diversionist tactic uh, they explained the Putin's counterpunch in Crimea which was very very fast because Russian intelligence they had excellent info that there would be a replica of the Kiev coup in Crimea in Simferopol and this was a matter of a few days only, probably two or three days. When they had this information, look, they're going to try to 
take over Simferopol. And the first thing they're going to do, of course, is to take over the base in Sebastopol. So Putin, okay, what I'm going to do? So he decided, okay, uh, we don't invade. We're not going to bomb anything. He sent the famous uh, <laughs> uh, pleasant green men, right? Uh, they took over most of the military installations that really matter. Uh, they protected the base, which, after all, there were Russian troops already there protecting the base. And, obviously, most of the parliament in Crimea, they were pro-Russians, or they were Russian speakers, Russophones, or linked to Russia by cultural, political, sentimental, gastronomic ties, you name it, you know. And the... The referendum was legal. The people who were there supervising it, a lot of journalists as others, it was absolutely legal because the absolute majority of the population, they wanted to go back to Russia. We all know the story, né? Uh, Khrushchev in 54. Everybody, mm. they were uh, Russian citizens of part of the Russian motherland as well. So uh, obviously it was a no-brainer, the final result. Uh, the thing is that because Plan A for the Americans worked, which was the putsch itself, uh, the sequence to plan A didn't work, which was to take over uh, the base in Sevastopol and obviously turn it to NATO in the short run, medium term, or the long run. So plan B was to blame Russia for annexing Crimea and Russian aggression, which is the official narrative for the past three months mm -hmm. at least. Uh, it's the same thing that is being repeated over and over again, not only by the Americans, but by Holland, Cameron, Renzi in Italy, you name it. Same mm -hmm. thing. Uh, but still, plan, they, they want the sequence to plan A, which is to isolate Russia from Europe. For the Americans, this uh, Eurasian integration, which is basically Russia and China, integrating closer and closer with Europe through Central Asia, uh, Turkey as well, very important. It's an absolute no-no. This, this is the number one priority. We cannot allow Europe to become more independent from us and have uh, closer trading commercial relations with both Russia and China. It happens that both Russia and China, they have their own integration strategies as well. The Russian strategy is uh, the Eurasian Economic Union. They already signed, first three countries already signed the, uh, the agreement. They would like Ukraine to be part of it as well. From now on, forget it. But they want to integrate the Eurasian Economic Union with the EU as well, in terms of more trade and commerce between these two blocks, which makes perfect sense. And at the same time, the Chinese have the new Silk Roads project, which is not only one Silk Road. It's all sorts of Silk Roads, one through Central Asia, one through Siberia, one through Southeast Asia, Thailand, Myanmar as well, one through the Indian Ocean as well. And the, for them, the number one, uh, let's say the Silk Road of all Silk Roads, which is what President uh, Xi Jinping, when he went to Germany in April, announced in Germany, which is, uh, it's fascinating because most of the, the, the railway is, is, is already there. There's only, I would say, only a few hundred kilometers to be built. From uh, Chongqing in Sichuan province 
center of China to Duisburg in the Ruhr Valley in Germany. It's absolutely fascinating because this could be ready in a matter of two years or so. So then instead of taking the naval, the maritime route, uh, commerce between uh, EU, the heart of the EU, Germany, and China, can be over land. And in fact, they save at least uh, five to seven days in terms of uh, railway being faster than the maritime route. So this, in terms of uh, Eurasian integration, the way I see it, this is the holy grail. For the Americas, it's an absolute nightmare because this means Eurasia would be really integrated in a trading commercial way. And there's no way uh, this is going to be worse than the, the two uh, free trade deals the Americans are trying to ram up <laughs> against the Europeans and the Asians at the same time. Uh, opposition in, in uh, some European countries against this transatlantic agreement is enormous, as, you, as yeah. I'm sure you know about it. And in Asia, don't even mention this uh, Obama tour was an absolute flop, in fact, because the Japanese they would never sign the Trans-Pacific Agreement because they know this is going to basically uh, American big business is going to destroy their auto industry and their agriculture. Absolutely paranoid about it. And even smaller countries like the Malaysians, they didn't say anything positive about the, the TPP as well. So, you know, the, the American so-called trade uh, strategy of their pivoting to both uh, Russia and Asia, uh, it's an absolute disaster for them. Mm -hmm. So what? <laughs> the militaristic approach, right? So expansion of NATO forever. Mm -hmm. So you think that it can sell this to European public opinion, which uh, I, I think that the results in the last um, uh, European uh, Parliament elections show that a significant, I wouldn't say majority yet, but uh, soon it's going to be a majority of Europeans. They, they, come on, with austerity all over the continent and uh, economic crisis in most European countries, you're going to spend money on a militaristic approach against Russia and China at the same time. This is beyond stupid, right? Mm, yeah. While reading your book... Uh it was very interesting, this part about pipelines, and uh, obviously one of the ob objectives of the U.S. is to uh, shunt Russia and, uh, militarily speaking, to encircle and maybe, maybe destroy Russia, but at the same time, those pipeline strategies put Europe as dependent to the U.S., because mm -hmm. the U.S. would control the fields, the old fields, and the pipelines. And I was wondering if... Uh, Beyond this attempt to destroy Russia, there is also a, an attempt to uh, keep Europe as a slave. And in the end, the U.S. might fail to destroy Russia, but in addition, they might, they might lose their current ally, slave, Europe. So how do you see uh, in the future the position of Europe and uh, the choice that Europe is facing now already, Russia or U.S.? Exactly. It depends on the political classes in Europe, but uh, just take a look at the roster that we have at the moment. In each individual Western European country, not to mention those uh, Eurocrats in Brussels, the European Commission, uh, the UE, people who are managing UE, uh, you know, the commissioners for inside the European Commission. It's an absolute disaster. I, I, you, you cannot simply you cannot trust any of these people. 
uh, every time I, I used to do Brussels a lot in the 90s. So, and I still have some good friends who work in the EU and the EC. So they're always feeding me very good information. They're always complaining. They say, look, we are uh, hostages of Gazprom. But obviously, we're hostages of Gazprom because you cannot buy uh, oil and gas from Iran. And they say, of course, we cannot do anything with Iran because the Americans won't let us. So why don't you try something different? Obviously, because they, they have been discussing European, a unified European energy policy, as far as I remember, for 10 years now. They still don't have one. And they won't have one because each country wants uh, the best thing for themselves. They are haggling about the South Stream now, the South Stream pipeline. Mm-hmm. Some want to cancel it, and some countries say, no, we need that gas. And the only one who's going to provide us is Russia. It's not going to be Turkmenistan. It's not going to be Azerbaijan. And Iran is going to take years, even if we have a deal a clinched this year about the nuclear dossier, Iranian nuclear dossier. So don't expect coherence from European politicians, from Brussels. They're still haggling about everything, and it's still a very nationalistic approach. They don't have a unified European approach, as they don't have a unified European foreign policy, right? Uh, who runs Europe? Nobody knows. The famous Henry Kissinger song. Who do I call in Europe? Nobody's going to call Herman van Rompuy. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, yeah, the Europeans and incoherence, I think, is is best summed up by something this week, a statement from Commission President, can we call him that? He wasn't even elected. Uh, Barroso, who said, um, did he say, oh, he said that, uh, well, initially I was a little excited because he said it's absurd or something along those lines that the EU is going to be able to rely on um, fracked, natural gas from the U.S. That's a pipe dream, pun not intended. But we have enough resources in Poland and Ukraine. We're going to frack Europe ourselves, and that'll be our future. I mean, that's not going to be enough, as far as I know. And it's insane anyway. I mean, we know what's happening in the U.S. with, with fracking. I mean... It's completely insane, and the thing is, they, they think they can get away with it, and they are not well-informed journalists or the average citizens that are going to say, look, you're talking bullshit. Uh, in, in terms of the fracking uh, miracle in the U.S., there was a report a few days ago, a Californian report, that was proving that uh, the, the fracking myth in California has already been shattered completely. And then we have the White House almost on a weekly basis saying we're going to start selling shale gas to Europe so they won't depend on Gazprom anymore. Even if the U.S. started exporting natural gas to Europe, and it's a major if because, first of all, they have to build the, uh, the port terminals for these huge cargo ships to, so, so the, the, the LNG can flow from American shores to Europe. This would take 10 years at least. So if uh, everything went according to plan uh, and they will have excess uh, shale gas in the U.S. and they built the terminals and they would start exporting, this wouldn't happen before 2022, 2025. It's not going to happen. And this latest uh, Californian report was very instructive, showing that you know, it's, it's a disaster. Not only is it an ecological disaster, as we all know, but, you know, it's not working. It's not working. And, 
and all the people in Europe, they they <laughs> they they read these things, and you know, and they you know they have access to facts as well, so they know it. There are only um, there are two possible uh, extra suppliers apart from Gazprom. One is Iran, which is another extremely complex story. If there is, and I'm not very sure there's going to be a deal this year because the Americans themselves are trying to derail it. They introduced a, a, a military angle in terms of uh, uh, Iranian missiles in the middle of the discussion. This has nothing to do with the nuclear dossier. So it's going to be a very, very dodgy negotiation from now on. Uh, even if there was an agreement, and then we have the next day, we're going to have what? Total, BP, Shell, everybody goes to Tehran. Okay, let's strike a lot of deals. They can't because the Iranian energy infrastructure, it's not up to date. The, the last figure, this is something I keep repeating because it's the last figure that I got from the Iranians themselves, the National Iranian Oil Company. Uh, they said a few years ago already, this was in 2000, if I'm not mistaken, 2007, 2008, they needed $200 billion to upgrade their installations. So first of all, this is a lot of money, and second, it's going to take quite a while. Then they can start exporting uh, natural gas to Europe, replacing some of the market share of Gazprom. It's a very long-term project, but it's the only other uh, feasible uh, source that the European Union has. Turkmenistan is not going to happen. They were, remember when there was uh, a lot of speculation about building a Transcaspian pipeline mm -hmm. so we could have a Turkmen gas exported to Europe as well. No, most of the excess Turkmen gas, guess who they're selling to? China. China. Well, they built the pipeline to Turkmenistan through Uzbekistan. They, this pipeline was inaugurated in late 2009. They plan to expand this pipeline as well. So it's Turkmenistan, China. The Chinese got there first. They invested. They paid for the whole infrastructure, and they're getting the gas they need. So forget about Turkmenistan for you. So, you know, and the last resort would be, and then it's very interesting because we, we get in, inside the Syrian war with this one, Qatar. You remember the controversy uh, about Qatar or uh, the Iran-Iraq-Syria pipeline as future pipeline to supply Europe. Mm -hmm. Here we have a major difference. If we have Iran-Iraq-Syria pipeline, we would have what in Washington is absolute anathema, right? An alliance of Baghdad, uh, Tehran, and Damascus selling energy to American allies in Europe. So this is an absolute no-no from the start, right? Mm. So this is one of the reasons for the war in Syria. There are many, but this is a very important one. The alternative would be a pipeline from Qatar, which is the other side of the South Spars gas fields, which are shared between Iran and Qatar, uh, going through Jordan, Syria, controlled obviously by Western government, and then Eastern Mediterranean to Europe. So that's why Qatar played such a major role in the first, let's say, two and a half years of the, the Syrian civil war. Uh -huh. But Qatar fell out with Saudi Arabia. We all remember that. Story, uh, right? Actually, no. Can you remind us? 
That happened recently, but it was kind of below the radar. Tell us what uh, happened there. Okay, no problem. Look, uh, Qatar was uh, supporting the so-called Free Syrian Army, which at the time was uh, Washington's policy was aligned with Doha because, okay, let's support the Free Syrian Army. Uh, Assad must go. This is going to happen in the next few weeks. We all remember that. This was 2001, still early 2012. 2011, sorry. It's still yeah. early 2012. Uh, then, obviously, nothing happened because the Free Syrian Army was, uh, they were beyond incompetent, not only in the field, but also uh, the, the so-called leaders, which most, most of them were hanging out in Paris hotels all the time. Ridiculous, right? And then last year, we had the famous... Uh, uh, there was a cat fight, in fact, between uh, Doha and Riyadh, mm-hmm. Qatar and Saudi Arabia. And that's when Bandar Bush became so important because Bandar Bush told the Americans, look, these idiots from Qatar, it's not going to work. They're not going to bring down uh, Assad. I know how to do it. After all, I ran part of the uh, jihad in the 80s in Afghanistan. I have my connections. Trust me. I'm the director of national intelligence in Saudi Arabia. The king gave me carte blanche. I can do anything I want. And in Washington, obviously, they bought it. The problem is that Bandar Bush's tactics also did not work. And that included a lot of uh, operations which I and other uh, independent analysts consider false flags operations, including gas attacks from all over the place. And the Russians, in fact, they had intelligence on one of these operations that they brought to the UN, proving that the Guta gas attack was a false flag. Obviously, this was, this was never examined at the UN because the US vetoed it. So Bandar Bush tactics, which was to arm not only the so-called moderates, which, in fact, are, are being resurrected nowadays by the Americans, but also the hardcore a connection with the hardcore people the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant, and Jabhat al-Nusra. They had connection with Bandar Bush. And Bandar Bush was the overall architect of the so-called resistance for for many months, for almost a year, in fact. It also did not work, as we know. And then Bandar Bush was sidelined because the Americans themselves were fed up with the fact that nothing was working. And they had nothing to show for in terms of, uh, you know, Assad must go tomorrow. Now it's it's back to the original, more or less the original plan, but only with more weapons. Uh, That's what what we were discussing a a while ago. They are uh, supplying lethal weapons to this uh, extremely disorganized bunch of fighters who, you know, remnants of the Free Syrian Army. Some are hardcore jihadists, some are not. Uh, Some were trained in Turkey and in Jordan. Uh, you name it. But these people are not going to... Everybody knows. Uh, they, they, they can control uh, parts of uh, Syria, which are basically desert in the northeast, for instance. Uh, uh, suburbs of Aleppo, which are not important because they're too far away from Aleppo itself. They lost the military corridor through homes as well. So, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's a matter of time before, you know, the Assad government says, okay, we won the civil war, which is a very sorry state of affairs for the Syrians themselves, because this is not going to solve anything. But the original American plan, which was regime change, is not going to happen, period. And they know it. 
So this also means that, uh, in terms of the Europeans, the alternative scenario of having this uh, Qatar-funded uh, pipeline through Jordan and uh, a Muslim Brotherhood-controlled Syria, let's put it this way, it also is not going to happen. So com coming back to our original story, the best option for Europe is still Gazprom. And in the long run, Iran. But we're talking a long run of at least 10, 12, 15 years, you know. Yeah. One, one, of, one of the interesting things, on the, as you call it, catfight between Qatar and Saudi Arabia a few months ago was uh, that Saudi Arabia said that or demanded that Qatar, the Qatar government, boot out the Brookings Institute and the Rand Corporation from Qatar and okay. said... Exactly. And they said also that any uh, jihadis returning from Syria uh, basically were not allowed to return to Saudi Arabia. And to me, that kind of said uh, that the, the Saudis were getting a bit spooked with uh, what was going on between Qatar and the Americans or something. Oh, yes. Look, <laughs> the level of mistrust between these uh, GCC players is, uh, look, it's, it's absolutely unbelievable. It, exactly, because both lobbies are very strong. You know, uh, Riyadh lobby is more powerful and stronger. But Doha, they have a very, very strong uh, soft power lobby in the U.S. as well. Plus, uh, you know, the fact that they invite a lot of American institutions, the fact that they are sponsoring Barcelona. So in terms of soft power, you know, the, the fact that they bought a lot of real estate in both London and Paris and uh, English companies, uh, French companies, mm. and so they, they carry a lot of weight. And the Saudis totally freak out because they always thought that they were top of the heap. And we run uh, uh, the GCC and it's not the case. And that's why they even tried to remember a few months ago when they, they were practically trying to kick uh, Qatar out of the GCC. They pulled uh, out ambassadors. They were threatening sanctions against Doha. It's ridiculous. You know? it, it's a farce. Yeah, the whole thing just gives you the impression that <clears throat> they really, a catfight is really a, a good way to describe it, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, maybe another question, Pepe, back to, to Russia. From what to describe, on an energetic level at least, common sense, basic common sense, is that Russia and Europe should work together. Europe needs oil and gas. Russia has oil and gas. It's nearby. Infrastructure are easy to make, <clears throat> going to safe territory. But even beyond the energetic chapter, obviously, on a geographic level, cultural level, historic level, Europe and Asia being together makes sense too. So it seems that U.S. is fighting against the most natural and fundamental law, against common sense. Yes, uh, I agree with you. Because it's, uh, it's, uh, the way I frame it is uh, Washington is trying to do everything they can to prevent Eurasian integration. And that's what historically, in trading terms, in commerce terms, even in cultural terms, and the Chinese yeah. have forever to resurrect the notion of the Silk Road. What the Silk Road historically did, before it passed by uh, the great uh, discoveries, Columbus, etc., was integrating China, India, Central Asia, Venice. You know, we don't have to go back to rereading Marco Polo to see how it worked. You know, it worked both ways, of course, between uh, especially Italy and, uh, and China. So the fact that they are resurrecting the concept 
nowadays. I, th I think it's fascinating. It, once again, it shows that the Chinese have a very long historical memory, and they knew what worked for centuries in terms of integrating, uh, exchanging ideas. You had Buddhist monks uh, doing pilgrimages all over the Silk Road. You, ha you had a, a very, very strong uh, commercial links between Asia and Europe. And they want to redo it now with the fiber optics, with the high-speed train. And it, it makes total sense, of course. <clears throat> because yeah. it means uh, less American control of Europe, which uh, every way we look at it, basically for, for the ruling elites in Washington, Europe is still a bunch of uh, colonies. Let's be blunt because that's what it is. When you go to Italy and you see all those military bases in Italy, like every time I go there, I see graffiti in Italy all over protesting about that huge base in Vicenza near Venice. You know, those bases, Ramstein in Germany, you name it. You know, it's still a colony, just like South Korea with 36,000 troops. Okay, but it's still... This is still it's viewed by Washington as a colony, not to mention Japan, not to mention Japan, Okinawa, you name it. So, you know, this state of affairs changing little by little with more Eurasian integration, uh, China reaching all over Eurasia, Southeast Asia, doing deals, now better relations, hopefully. Uh, in fact, both sides want a better India-China relationship. Uh, Russia and China, their strategic partnership, and everything that uh, is a direct consequence of it, like bypassing the petrodollar special. The, the Americans are completely paranoid about the BRICS, especially bypassing the petrodollar uh, within their own economies, the BRICS, but also expanding to other developing world economies as well. And obviously, when the petrodollar it's, it's going to become a minority in energy transactions. That's the real game changer. People would say, no, this was never going to happen, maybe by 2050. No, it could happen by 2020, if not earlier. People are not betting that uh, uh, the Chinese economy will become the largest economy in the world by uh, PPP in 2014, which mm -hmm. is what happened this year. In fact, they were saying, no, after 2020. So, you know, the, all these accelerations all over. Uh, there's going to be a BRICS meeting in Brazil next month. I'm very curious about this meeting because they, uh, this, what I've heard here is that they plan to go step up the, the integration and step up big, big time. Uh, Putin is coming to Brazil. Modi. The new Indian leaders coming to Brazil, Xi Jinping, Dilma is absolutely furious with the Americans, especially because of the NSA scandal. So they, they are, taught, you know, the, at, at the Sherpa and ministerial level, the integration is, uh, you know, it's fast paced now. So pay attention to what's going to happen next month at the BRICS summit. Yeah, just in, um, in relation to the, that idea of uh, it being practical, Historically, uh, you know, practical or uh, are, are a part of a part of European or Eurasian history that that those countries that that part of the world works together. Uh, I noticed that the only thing that the Americans can do, apart from what you said, which is basically expand NATO and try and bomb people into submission, is that they they try to incite or excite uh, amongst Western Europeans at least. Uh, 
the kind of Cold War and, you know, even about, you know, communist kind of China, you know, basically the American history goes back to only so far, you know, only goes back to maybe the Second World War, you know. So the European leaders and people are encouraged by the U.S. to remember their ties. And even there's maybe a, a kind of a racial tie as well in the sense that essentially Europeans and Americans are, at least the whites anyway, are, are um, the same people. They have a shared recent history. And uh, and uh, I'm thinking of just the D-Day uh, celebrations the other day, you know, where there was a, <clears throat> a lot of focus, Obama and the French and the Germans, Putin kind of there on the sidelines. But, you know, it was very much uh, U.S. and Europe together. You know, we have a shared Together history. forever. Together forever. We're a shared history. And maybe that's what's going on. Maybe there's some pressure being put on, at least at an ideological level, with the Europeans, pressure being put on by the U.S. to say, listen, you know, you're not Chinese. You're not even kind of, I remember Russia was, you know, they're the commies, right? I mean, they're the enemy, and they still are the enemy, and it's Europe. We saved you. America saved Europe, you know, so remember who your your friends are, you know? But like you said, Pepe, it's, uh, especially the Chinese and the Russians have a longer history going back, and the, the Europeans are going to be faced with uh, the question of, you know, well, let's leave ideology aside here for a minute and look at practicalities. Absolutely. And the way, the way they were trying to practically uh, isolate Russia from the D-Day, uh, mm. uh, everybody who knows history in Europe <laughs> knows that without the Red Army winning in the Eastern Front, there would never have been a D-Day. Everybody knows that. You know, but obviously, don't expect Le Monde or the Corriere della Sera to print that on the page, right? No. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the average European citizen, the average well-informed European citizen, I'm, I'm sure people know the facts. And uh, look, once again, this uh, groundswell against the way the European Union is run nowadays which manifested in the latest European elections. This is, going, this is going all over Europe, in fact. They don't want the EU, it's not even a project, but the EU racket the way it's being run today and uh, the way the Troika is running Europe today, especially with the IOM, strong collaboration uh, from the IMF, which is basically an American. The IMF is essentially an American control racket, right? Uh, I happen to have a very close friend who was part of the, the three guys under DSK in the IMF. So he, he told me some <laughs> juicy stories. <laughs> I can imagine. I wonder. <laughs> I'm not talking about sex. Huh? Oh, no? Oh. <laughs> uh, and, and, um... Just as, as an aside, this guy said that uh, DSK has all the tapes from the Sofitel, that story proving that uh, he was framed. Yeah. yeah. Apparently, he showed those tapes in the U.S., and that's why they had to drop the case. Because if they went to court and these tapes surfaced, you know, it, was, it would be blatant that, uh, you know, this woman, in fact, uh, she was willing. Uh, what happened in that, in, in that room? Uh, it's not that she was raped or he was trying to rape her. She was willing. Then when she left, she concocted a story, and the security went there and organized everything with her. So he was framed after the fact, but still he was framed. So uh, that, that's the best explanation to why the Americans had to drop the case. Why was, he, why was he framed? 
Oh, there's so much. Well, first of all, uh, Sarkozy interests. Second, he was actually trying to reform the IMF from the yeah. inside. This is what some of my IMF uh, sources told me. Uh, he was very well regarded by many people in the developing countries, which were not, not, not as uh, board members, but they had important positions inside the IMF, because he was trying to uh, basically wrest more control away from the Europeans and, you know, going to especially India, China, and Brazil. And obviously the Europeans resented him a lot, and yeah, not to mention the Americans. So there, there are a number of reasons. And a lot of people didn't want him to become a president of France because uh, he, he uh, for, for all his uh, personal faults, he wanted a more redistributive uh, system, not only in the IMF, but even inside France and the European Union uh, itself. So he had to go. And uh, he was number one in the, in the polls, in the survey about the presidential election in France when, uh, when he got framed. And a few months before the Sofitel scandal, um, there was some news about uh, Strauss-Kahn dragging his feet about the plan to destroy Greece financially. So despite all these weaknesses, his uh, uh, political ideology and his uh, womanizer trends, he was maybe not as evil as the PTB wanted. Uh, (laughs) That's a good way of putting it. And he was not an austerity guy, essentially. To hone in on a specific crisis, feel free to bring it out into a broader context. But you've been there, and I've been wondering which way the wind blows in this case. It's about Thailand. What's going going on there? I mean, this tycoon Thaksin Shinawatra, he seems to be Washington's guy. Yes. Look, it's wow. This is this is one of those answers that could go on forever because. Uh, it involves a lot of uh, cultural elements as well. Uh, it involves the notion of the Thais uh, hating to lose face. It's a Buddhist culture with a veneer of democracy. It's a feudal system with a veneer of uh, redistribution. It's extremely complicated. But, okay, I'll try to, to do it the Hollywood way, right? Okay. Uh, good guys and bad guys to start with. Everybody, the way I see it, is corrupt, tainted, and their motives are extremely dodgy. And by this, I mean the taxing clan, including obviously his sister, which was prime minister until uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, I, I live in Thailand on and off, so, I, I, so I, when I'm there, I, I, I tend to follow the, the everyday life in, uh, in Bangkok and in politically as well. Extremely corrupt government. They came up with a rice pledge scheme that, uh, you know, the money disappeared. They they couldn't even have the money to pay back the rice farmers. Ridiculous. They came up with an idea of, you know, spend two trillion baht. I don't know. I don't even know how much that is in dollars. But anyway, a few billion dollars uh, in terms of infrastructure, always, you know, in connection with the corrupt uh, Always, what else? With the construction companies linked to the Shinawat clan. On the other hand, we have the, the so-called yellow shirts, which is not a monolithic movement as well. You have monarchists, you have the urban middle classes, you have business leaders, 
you have the parts of the Democrat Party, which was the opposition to taxing uh, until a while ago. And you have a bunch of opportunists as well, including the leader of the protest movement against Jung Luk. In the end, he got what he wanted, but when the military coup came, everybody was arrested, including himself. So, you know, it's a, it's a comedy of errors and, and corruption as well, but with an Asian spice, you know. For, for foreigners, practically uh, incomprehensible, because uh, everything, obviously, Thai language is an extremely complicated language, so every, a lot of it gets lost in translation. Uh, a lot of people are playing both sides, of course, including the military until a while ago. Uh, and over, overarching problematic, in fact, the king's succession, which is the number one drama for Thailand. Because, the, you know, King Bumibol has uh, been in, in, uh, in power since the 60s. He's revered by the whole nation. He's considered a, a living god, etc. But he's ill and he's going to die soon. And then we're going to have a major problem because nobody, and I run the risk of being arrested for saying so, nobody likes the crown prince. Period. This, mm-hmm. this is a blunt fact. They love the princess, but she's the second in the line of succession. So something has to happen with the crown prince, and nobody knows what that should be. So this is, this is the trickiest of the trickiest subjects in, in Thailand. And at the same time, the relations between Thaksin and the crown prince, they are very, very close. So when the military analyze this in the long run, when they look at the the health of uh, the king, which is deteriorating fast, in fact. Okay, the only solution, and obviously business leaders were saying every day, look, Thailand is being marginalized in Southeast Asia in in broader Asian terms. We are losing business. We are losing competitivity. We are losing even tourism. People don't want to travel to Thailand anymore. They're going to our competitors, Singapore, Indonesia, Malaysia, etc., Okay, the only way to restore order is a military coup because democracy style didn't work. Uh, the Democrats are corrupt. Then they were replaced by the Taksin clan, which is also corrupt, a populist corrupt school. Uh, they never, bo- both sides never did anything uh, really uh, substantial for the good of the whole country, in fact. The country is divided between roughly urban elites, which urban elites means Bangkok, because it's the only big city, in fact, and vast sectors of the countryside in the north and northeast. Northeast is very poor, but they were entitled by taxing, you know, uh, food schemes, uh, free health care, a little bit of investment in education, etc. So it was good. good. So they will always vote for taxing or for the taxing clan. So the, only, the military looked at all this and said, okay, the only way is to, okay, we launch another military coup. It will last for a year or so. We'll restore order. We see what's going to happen with the succession. We pick our candidate and things go back to normal. I'm not sure this is going to be the way things will go. It's, it's going to be an absolute mess in Thailand, especially if the king dies and the is not uh, arbitrated or resolved, in fact. So this is my minute explanation. <laughs> Thank you. That's a lot clearer. It's, well, clearer might not be the 
Light word. It's clear that it's a mess. Much more complicated than that, trust me. <laughs> yeah. So I just want to swing back over to uh, Iraq. Um, the U.S. got the hell out of there in 2011, supposedly, but uh, things haven't been going well since then, although the figures I have for uh, U.S. presence in Iraq still today is uh, a U.S. embassy in Baghdad with 17,000 personnel, uh, 5,000 5, U.S. hired mercenaries in the country, and then uh, consulates in Basra, Mosul, and Kirkuk with 1,000 people each. So, I mean... Has the U.S. left, and uh, why is uh, why is there so much violence going on with people being killed every every week? Well, the West the West has more or less left, but even the ones who are still there, they're not going to get anything out of Iraq. Period. Because uh, of all the the big big problem is Iraq. The way the way the system was concocted by the Americans is very similar to Lebanon, in fact where you're going to have all three factions in Lebanon fighting themselves to death forever. In Iraq, it's the same thing with the Sunnis, the Shias, and the Kurds. Problem is, the Shias and the Kurds, they have an understanding, at least in terms of forming governments or a majority. So the Sunnis from now on, every election that you have, and because they are not the majority in terms of the population, they're going to lose. And they're starting to feel extremely pissed with this state of affairs. And some tribal leaders, in fact, uh, we should never forget that the Iraq is a very tribal society, clannish society. They are trying to resort to violence. And some of them are actually supporting the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant, especially in the, remember the former triangle of death, <laughs> Ramadi. Mm. Uh, you know, Ambar province. This is what, look, it, it happened this week. They took over the University of Ramadi, these jihadists. This is completely crazy. So the government in Baghdad, they had to send special forces to fight the jihadists. I still don't know what happened. I say this, this is an ongoing battle, as far as I can tell. So, and this is going to go on for quite a while. Uh, the Sunni parties know that they won't get enough political power. Uh, Maliki is a very clever man, but also very obtuse because he's unwilling to share power, especially with some Sunnis, like giving, giving them at least some important ministry, something like that. Forget it. And the Kurds, they only care about Kurdistan, northern Iraq. They want to do deals with, uh, you know, export their gas and their oil. They want to bypass Baghdad in terms of uh, receiving uh, the royalties. They only care about a, a semi-independent uh, northern Iraq, uh, Kurdistan. So I don't see any solution for this in, in the medium and long term. And as for American interests, you know, it's uh, – in fact, the, the strategic relationship is, considering the – the current arrangement stays with a majority uh, Shiite uh, Kurdish government with Maliki as prime minister, is with Iran. They have a very good understanding. Uh, it's, it's not a, a, a hardcore militaristic uh, alliance, no. But they have very strong commercial ties. Uh, tourism works both ways. You have millions of Iranian pilgrims going every year to Najaf, 
and Karbala, which is an enormous source of uh, revenue for Iraq. Iraq, if they little by little, they are going to reconstitute their oil production. They're going to start. They say, uh, okay, they're always saying that every every month. We're going to start exporting 5 million barrels of oil a day soon. This soon is going to take years, but they're getting there. So, you know, at least the, uh, the standard of living for most Iraqis at least could be slightly better than it is, uh, like, say, five, six, seven years from now. But we still cannot forget the way the Americans destroyed the whole country. It's, mm-hmm. it's absolutely horrendous. I haven't been to Iraq in a few years now, but, I, but you know, my, the people I know, they tell me that nothing has changed much this past few years. You still have roadblocks everywhere, destroyed buildings, uh, and uh, sewage systems that don't work, you know, tele- uh, telephone exchanges that were destroyed and never rebuilt, you name it, you name it. Uh, the country was completely devastated by the American bomb. It's, uh, it's my boggling and ex- an extremely sad story, not fully documented, in fact. The extent that uh, a country was uh, you know, practically back to year zero, like Cambodia under Pol Pot, but in, in this case under Bombay, and they had to rebuild from scratch. But because Iraq is as a whole, uh, w- w- whatever their religious persuasion, they are very enterprising. They have very good universities, so their universities are back on track at least. You know, some of the Iraqi exiles came back with good, uh, you know, entrepreneurial skills that they developed in the West or in, in Scandinavia, you name it. So they, they will rebuild themselves, but it, it's a long project, and in terms of the political impasse, it's going to last for the foreseeable future. Pepe, um, another question about Iraq. Did the U.S. corporation manage to take control of the Iraqi oil fields? No, because, uh, uh, in fact, you have to go back to the auctions in 2009. Yeah, the last one, I think, was in late 2009. The best contracts were Petronas from Malaysia, Gazprom, they got some very good deals, CNPC from China, uh, I think Total, they, they had a decent deal, and lots of partnerships as well. Exxon, I think ExxonMobil got a partnership in one of the, one of the largest fields as well. So, but the original Dick Cheney plan, which was for American big oil to take over the whole thing, you remember, we're mm-hmm. going to be the new, oh, this thing died in 2009, <laughs> the auctions. It's, it's very simple. If, if you do a Google search, it's all there with the numbers, the partnerships, etc. And a guy wrote a very good book about it, Greg Moffitt. I don't remember the name of his book. Uh, most of it is there, in fact. So, yes, the net result was just a destroyed country. They didn't actually get anything from it. The destruction of a very important Arab nation. And this is something that, well, okay, the Arabs are always bickering among themselves. We know that. But this is something that any Arab will carry forever in the subconscious, you know, that uh, former seat of the caliphate, former star of the Islamic world, totally destroyed. And, you know, it's going to take decades or at least, what, a century for them to rebuild, you know. And uh, I would like to go back to Europe facing this choice between... uh, I just want to, while we're in the Middle East for a second, um, uh, just this paradox of 
American foreign policy, destroying Iraq, antagonizing the entire Muslim world, and yet substantially an American project to create these jihadists. That they're the same guys who pop up in country after country. You know, you get Chechens in Syria, you get Libyans in, uh, in Syria also. Uh, the, the Americans, I mean, they don't know what they're doing, it seems, or do they? Uh, they no, they know what, uh, I, w- I would say the overall picture in terms of uh, financing or at least supporting hardcore religious movements. This is something they have been doing for decades now. Uh, most of the time, according to their designs, it worked. And in fact, the number one example is the jihad in Afghanistan in the 1980s. They saw that they could replicate that later on, like in Libya, which, okay, in Libya also worked, but it was a NATO bombing war to start with, right? And also replicated in Syria. In fact, I, I, I wrote about it as Syria as a remix of the jihad in Afghanistan in the 80s, which is, it was until, a, what, a while ago, and maybe it will continue to be if we have this uh, uh, little weapon, uh, little lethal weaponizing of the so-called moderates, the way the Washington is spinning nowadays. And, and, and look, it's, it's one of the basic strategies of the empire. If you are confronted with a secular government or a government you don't like, or a communist government, which is even worse, let's release the bats, which is basically those wacko religious nuts, you know, essentially, yeah, yeah. essentially Middle Eastern, but they, they could come from uh, somewhere else as well. They happen to be the easiest to, to manipulate, especially after the Afghan war, which was, uh, we all know how the Afghan war was concocted. Uh, they needed a counterpunch against the Soviet Union, for Vietnam. So the only people that they could easily manipulate was the religious sentiments in Afghanistan. And the Saudis, which are not idiots in, the, in terms of expanding Wahhabi ideology, they saw the perfect opening. Okay, we're going to export all our religious nuts to Pakistan. We build a lot of madrasas over there. We finance these madrasas. We educate these people. And then they go fight in Afghanistan. And they stay away from here, <laughs> Saudi Arabia. So it worked for the U.S. and it worked for Saudi Arabia. And for Pakistan, they got a lot of money. They got a lot of weapons, support from the U.S., etc. So it also worked. But the price that Pakistan had to pay was uh, what uh, used to be defined in Pakistan as the Kalashnikov culture which started in the late 70s throughout the, the 80s, and it's still there, in fact. But uh, this is collateral damage in terms of the empire, right? For the empire, that it's always like this. Okay, let's use the religious wackles. And they happen to be Muslim all the time. I will not shed a tear if and when they return to Saudi Arabia and set things alight there. That country is uh, obviously, the U.S. is primarily to blame here, but Saudi Arabia has got it coming, I hope. Oh, yes, and they are, and they are absolutely <laughs> freaking out with that. You know, the, you, yeah. you remember yeah. a few months ago, there was uh, the new counterterrorism law in Saudi Arabia. It's something extremely draconian, you know, and they're trying to prevent by all means the return 
of these jihadists. <laughs> like, if you are a jihadist in Syria, or if you come back, you have to register with the government. You know, mm-hmm. otherwise, you know, they're, they're going to kill you. <laughs> Simple as that, you know. They are absolutely terrified because they also have a, a succession problem. They have a lot of youth unemployment. They know that a lot of young uh, Saudis are trying to resort to jihadism, all over, global jihadism all over the world. So obviously they are freaking out now. So Saudi Arabia will be, in the long run, another collateral damage of the, this uh, in, empire policy, just like Pakistan was and still is. No? Yeah, um, I would like to go back to Europe and uh, we describe this uh, choice that Europe would face between the US on one side and the East, Russia, China on the other side. We pretty much know the US ideology, the neocon ideology, which less uh, imperialistic, expanding, uh, unipolar. Uh, could you describe on the other side the Eastern ideology, the Russian one and the Chinese one? Yes, uh, it's not expansionist. Uh, what the Russians want, and I, I was in St. Petersburg uh, two weeks ago, so I, I had the opportunity to talk to, to Russian business leaders as well, Russian journalists, independent analysts as well. It's, they want more trade and commerce. Uh, th- that's the spirit of the Eurasian Economic Union. So the, the previous uh, Soviet sphere, of course, they want more business with uh, Central Asia, obviously. They want more trade ties with uh, uh, China and India at the same time, of course, and more integration in Europe, which is the basis of the German-Russian strategic partnership. Uh, Russia sells um, energy, and Germany invests in the Russian economy. And obviously, they have uh, market opportunities for big uh, German companies in Russia. It's a, ma- a market of 145 million people, roughly. You know, so it's, it's a good, like the Chinese say, it's a, good, it's a win-win business. And the Chinese, uh, it's, it's still a defensive strategy. They are, in fact, they are rattled by the notion of the pivoting. Because the way they interpret pivoting to Asia is, encirclement of China. They look at the pivoting and they see Iran surrounded by American bases. And they are absolutely terrified that this is what's going to happen to China. And it's happening already in Northeast Asia, Japan and uh, South Korea. It could happen in Southeast Asia as well, depending on, you know, Singapore, which is a kind of aircraft carrier of the Americans in Southeast Asia. It's not very far from China. Uh, if the Vietnamese start buying a lot of American military equipment. So, and of course, and the most important thing, uh, American interference in the South China Sea and in the Indian Ocean. So the way they look at it, uh, the big picture is they are trying to encircle us. How can we break out? So that's why they are investing heavily in uh, ports, especially in the South China Sea. And in terms of military equipment, the best that they can manufacture or eventually buy from the Russians, which is basically uh, submarines. They are building an enormous submarine base in Hainan Island, for instance, and missiles. Uh, missiles that can you know, sink an American aircraft carrier in a few minutes. And the, the Americans are not stupid. They know that this is going to happen, and sooner or later... They, will have to, they would have to de-escalate, in fact. So, and it's not an expansionist strategy. What the Chinese want to do is 
we want to do business with everybody. Mm-hmm. That's the thing that matters to them. So India, okay, we have, pro- of course, we have a hegemony problems in Asia, but if we do good business with India, it's fine. We can, everything else is a, is a detail. Russia, now they have, after this latest uh, Russia-China gas deal, the famous $400 billion deal, now there is a strategic partnership, including energy, and it tends to grow from now on. Uh, inside the BRICS, they, uh, they, they take it very, very seriously. They want more integration with all the BRICS, with Brazil as well, because Brazil, now number one uh, uh, export destination to Brazil is now China, and vice versa. So, uh, in the, and they are complementary countries. They are far away. They don't have hegemonic uh, global ambitions. So the Chinese are very fond of the, the Brazilian leadership, especially w- w- with Dilma. They, get, they got along very well with Lula, and they also get along very well with Dilma. Uh, and with Europe, like, like we said before, they want integration with high-speed rail from the heart of China to the heart of Europe so they can increase their trade tenfold in the next uh, 10 years or so. Mm-hmm. So n- nothing like this implies an expansionist strategy. Taiwan is an internal Chinese problem. Taiwan was always part of China until recently. So obviously, they want to get Taiwan back. If they don't, it's still not a problem for them because the economy is already totally interconnected. Most of a, There's a lot of Taiwanese investment in China. Uh, and obviously, if they have a one country, three systems, uh, one country, two systems is with Hong Kong. One country, three systems with Taiwan, it's fine with them as long as Taiwan doesn't have uh, independent ideas, mm. which is not going to happen. Whatever the rhetoric coming from uh, from Taipei, it's not it's not going to happen. And obviously, they, they still have to solve the the democracy equation inside China, of course, and with Hong Kong. Hong Kong, they they're going to have in 2017. They're going to have, which would be theoretically the first direct elections to have the CEO of Hong Kong. And this is a huge thing over there, huge. Uh, I live there uh, on and off as well, and I've been following this this past few months. And most Hong Kongers, they want to vote for their CEO because the past ones and the current guy, absolute failures. And obviously, Beijing's man, all of them. So they want to vote for a local, probably not a tycoon, that would represent the interest of the, the bulk of the Hong Kong population and not the construction industry, the tycoons, or the six families who control Hong Kong. Hong Kong is basically run by a cartel of six families. They control, I would say, almost 70% of the, the economy of Hong Kong. It's absolutely crazy. And the majority of the population, their standard of living is not as high as, as we, we, we think it is, higher than most in Europe, in fact. Not really. It's, you know, the salaries are not very, very, very high. Uh, Transportation system is good, infrastructure is great, but the cost of living is absurd. Uh, to own a home in Hong Kong now is practically impossible. So, you know, you have a rentier class which profits from, uh, you know, the highest rents in the whole planet for anything, for a Starbucks a corner shop to a, a one-bedroom flat, you name it. So they want to change this. They want more economic opportunities. They, they know that Hong Kong needs to diversify, you know, get away from uh, being a port and ba- everything based on real estate to have, uh, you know, be a scientific pole as well. They tried that, but it didn't work a few years ago. 
So, and obviously they want to elect their own CEO, let's put it this way. Uh, Taiwan has already solved that problem, but the Chinese are still very weary, the, the Chinese Communist Party. They still don't know how to deal with it inside China. Can you imagine dealing with Taiwan and Hong Kong at the same time, right? Mm. So in the long run, this push towards more democracy in China goes, you know, it's a head-on clash with the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party. So, and this is the number one issue in China in the long term. When are we going to have the Communist Party delegating a little more power? This is not going to happen. So when are we going to have an alternative political party springing up in China? If, if we depend on the CCP, this is also not going to happen because uh, even an embryonic uh, uh, movement like uh, would be the, the, the Chinese equivalent of uh, the homeless uh, movement in Brazil or the, the peasant movement in Brazil. If that happened in China, it would be suppressed immediately. You know. So for the moment, we don't have any other uh, political organization capable of competing with, it, with the Communist Party. So what they're doing is recycling the same slogans over and over again. It's either us or Luan, as they say chaos. And when you, when you talk about Luan to the Chinese, you have 5,000 years of history in their subconscious. Oh my God, we're not going back to the, go back to our warring uh, dynasty periods or you know, the provinces fighting Beijing. You know, we don't want this. We want stability because we want to make money. So Deng Xiaoping was a real genius because he went to the heart of the, the whole matter, right? To get rich is glorious means, okay, you can do anything you want, get rich, but we run the country politically. So I don't see any way of this being changed in the next, uh, in the next decade, I would say. Perhaps by 2030, we're going to have a, a different situation, you know, different movements brewing. Uh, the younger generations, which are, you know, internet connected, and obviously the CCP is absolutely, they are terrified of the internet. But this is going to take a while. Mm. Are the terrorist attacks and the unrest in Western China, yeah. are they a possible early manifestation of this social unrest? Yeah, it, this, this is also an extremely complex and, and fascinating uh, problem as well. Uh, a lot of people in the West are saying, oh, there's a, the CIA is there. Okay, they are. Like they, they are in Xinjiang, they are in Tibet, they've always been in Tibet, in fact. But these are legitimate grievances because the Uyghurs, in Western Xinjiang. Western Xinjiang is almost the size of Western Europe, to give you an idea. It's basically desert everywhere. It's a beautiful place. Desert basically everywhere with a few villages. Uh, you have the southern and the northern Silk Road uh, from Urumqi, the capital, to Kashgar. In the middle is, a hu is another huge desert. So it's very scattered. And the, uh, there's only one big city, Urumqi, the, the provincial capital where you find an Uyghur theme park in one of the suburbs. This is completely crazy. You know, it's their own land. And even in the capital, they are being uh, treated as a Disneyland minority, right? And in Kashgar, even worse, which used to be their capital. And nowadays, they destroyed the old uh, uh, town center in Kashgar, and they're going to build another Disneyland-style uh, so-called ethnic minority uh, Disneyland town for tourists from the east to visit. 
It's very, very soft. So when the Uyghurs look at what is being done to them and to their cultural traditions, to their villages, their towns, etc., there's a lot of a revolt about it. So the, the revolt is legitimate because if you are an Uyghur, you are a second-class citizen in China, not only in Xinjiang, everywhere else in China. I saw a lot of Uyghur workers working at 2 in the morning in Beijing, you know, doing ultra-heavy manual work that any Chinese, uh, Han Chinese worker would refuse to do. So, you know, it's less. The guys from the West, which for the average Chinese is not even China. When, you, when you're traveling in China and you, you go beyond uh, the end of the Great Wall, which is in Gansu province, every, every, everywhere west of that, they consider beyond the pale. They, they don't consider it part of China anymore. You know, it's too far away, and it's not China. But now it is because there is an, an official uh, program which started in 1999 called the Go West. By the way, it's called Go West Campaign, which is to get people from other provinces, uh, especially central provinces that are very poor. If they, go, if they relocate to Xinjiang, they get benefits, you know, tax exemptions, mm-hmm. uh, get work, you name it. And the local Uyghurs, they get nothing. So this explains, you know, 90% of these uh, protests we've been seeing, especially this past year, you know, the people attacking uh, Han Chinese with uh, knives. Why knives? Because uh, uh, the Uyghur knife is part of their culture for, you know, millennia, in fact. I, have, I happen to have a very beautiful one with me. News, <laughs> <laughs> by the way. <laughs> But, you know, so it's, uh, it's what's left to them to these uh, knife uh, revolts, let's put it this way. It's, it's a very, very sad story because they are not being integrated. It's the, the Han Chinese control everything, and the Uyghurs are tolerated as a small, troublesome minority. Same thing with the Tibetans, you know, essentially. So this is another problem. If the Chinese Communist Party don't find a way to integrate these people, Soon, I would say in a few years, they're going to have a substantial uh, young population, both in Tibet and in Xinjiang, that's going to, you know, they're going to resort to ultra-hardcore methods. And obviously, our friends in Langley, you know, infiltrate and weaponize these people. They'll only be too happy to do it. It sounds like China has, within its own borders, the problems of, of empire, yes. where you try to homogenize a whole society based on one system, but you see the whole world reacting to the United States trying to do it, and inevitably it's going to happen in larger countries too. Yes, the thing, the, the thing is, it, it depends on which sector of the American elites we're talking about, in fact. Uh, my conservative friends in the U.S., in fact, they, they tell me, look, the, the neocons are so stupid. They're not running anything anymore, and everything they did was a failure. Not really, because the putsch in Kiev basically was a neocon cell inside the State Department. It was part of the Kagan family, right? Victoria yeah. Victoria Nulandistan is a Kagan family invention, in fact. And it was inside the Obama administration. And we cannot forget, she was NATO ambassador 
before she was absorbed into the Obama administration. So they are still very, very powerful. You know, if, if you read the opinion pages of the, the Washington Post and Wall Street Journal, it's prime neocon material still. And they're still very influential. So I don't agree with, with uh, conservatives, especially in Washington or New York, who say they are, uh, they are dead. No. Uh, I see them as the return of the living dead, as I wrote in one of my pieces. <laughs> uh, as, they can't be killed. Yeah. <laughs> as, as for the Obama administration, I tend to agree that in terms of uh, competence, it's, it's the most incompetent American administration uh, that we can remember uh, of the past 50 years, maybe. And, and this, And even some progressives in the U.S. are starting to you know, to to see which way the wind is blowing, in fact. Because it's one blunder after another, and no foreign policy success to speak of, except, of course, the putsch in Ukraine. But we still don't know how this is going to develop. Uh, I, I tend to see that after a few months, we could even have a Maidan in reverse, in fact. Because mm-hmm. with the IMF controlling the Ukrainian economy, the fact that they don't have money to pay their bills, period. The fact that if they don't, if Poroshenko does not negotiate a, a modus operandi with Russia in terms of uh, trade, uh, commerce, uh, uh, you know, you know uh, uh, industries in eastern Ukraine, uh, which are very closely linked to the Russian industrial military complex, etc., it's going to be a major disaster. And people, obviously, are going to be freezing to death in uh, the Ukrainian winter uh, with no money at all, not even to pay their gas bills. So guess what's going to happen later on? You know? So this, uh, the plot in Ukraine is still a developing uh, story, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. The situation has been disaster after another. You know what they did in Libya? Now, in Libya, they did an Iraqi 2.0, in fact. They destroyed a whole country, and there's nothing replacing it. It's a country run by militias nowadays. It's, it's an absolute disaster. It's an American war and a NATO war. So NATO, in fact, they saw that they had won. Uh, okay, they, they did a tacitus, I would say, in Libya. Né? <laughs> they, they created a wasteland, called it peace, and now they have a failed state. And in Afghanistan, obviously, what happened with NATO after 12 years? They lost. Period. And they lost this war years ago. It's not that they lost in 2014, before the, the withdrawal uh, later this year. They lost that war already, I would say, in, the 2000, in early 2002, when the Taliban was even reorganizing themselves at the time. Because, you know, the, pop, the population, when they saw another army of uh, white people <laughs> arrive in Afghanistan, oh, shit, not again. <laughs> We're going to have to kick them out. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> although, although I'd say the military industrial, industrial complex, uh, the defense contractors all got pretty rich from these wars, even if they don't have any real point. The, you mean the, the American industrial military complex? Yeah, and the Europeans, I suppose. They are, well, they are, some sectors are betting on, on a war sooner or later involving NATO. That would be, for them, would be perfect. Mm. You know, that's why they're pushing for you know, against Russian aggression or trying to entice Russia to, between commas, invade. This is one of the proponents of uh, this strategy, apart from the neocons, of course, is that some sectors of the industrial military complex, war is good for business. It's the same thing. Mm-hmm. And in Africom, Africom is basically a racket 
to have more, you know, selling more weapons to the Pentagon to, to be deployed in Africa. For the moment, is uh, remember how Vietnam started, now with a few advisors. Mm-hmm. Africa is starting with a few advisors, a few special forces here and there. In a few years, we could have a new Vietnam all over Africa. Because the, the only strategy the Americans have with AFRICOM in Africa is a military strategy. They don't have a commercial strategy. They don't have a strategy of more trade with individual African countries. No way. It, when they discovered that China had deals with ev- virtually everybody, over 30 African countries, the response was to create AFRICOM still with the Bush administration, Bush II, 2007. Yeah. So for the military complex, Africa, it's a fabulous battleground for the future. Uh, Ukraine, perhaps in the near future. And the, the Middle East is a huge problem because uh, in, in Syria, it didn't work. It won't work. We won't see, uh, in terms of uh, global opinion, I don't see the Obama administration inundating uh, Syria with heavy weapons. Forget it. We're going to have more Kalashnikov, maybe a few anti-tank uh, grenades, you name it, but not more than that. Yeah, the battle's already lost there. Pepe, we've reached the end of our showtime. It's been a real pleasure. You've been a star guest. Thanks very much for coming on. My pleasure, guys. I hope this was helpful. Absolutely. I just want to give a shout-out to our listeners to check you out. You're on Asia Times and RT very often, and you've got three books. Um, do, you, you have a, do you have a website, Pepe? No, I don't, because... No time to organize all these things. I, I should have. And in fact, uh, uh, this is for our listeners, uh, Asia Times, uh, we are in a very, very complicated uh, juncture at the moment. So uh, if we, uh, we may be a victim of a hostile takeover. In fact. Mm. And if that happens, then I'll start considering other options with, mm-hmm. with other writers as well. Maybe we will start our own different websites, you know, something like that. But as you, as you, all of you know, it's very hard to do journalism on the net. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It's very difficult. It costs money. If we try to do investigative journalism, it's impossible because we don't have the resources. Uh, even to keep our writers is complicated because sometimes we're not able to pay them. We cannot afford to pay them the way they should be paid. So it's, it's a struggle. But at least a few of us are still there <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And more power to you, you know. Keep going, whatever you're doing. Whatever you're shaking, whatever drugs you're taking, keep taking them. <laughs> yeah, in, man. A, in any case, it was a, a fascinating uh, geopolitical uh, journey all around the world. And thank you very much for bringing us uh, in this journey. Right. And, uh, and good luck to you guys as well. All right, Pepe. Thank thanks. You. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. So, folks, there you go. That was Pepe Escobar. The one and only. Yeah. <laughs> His he, books are very funny. He, obviously, they're rich in detail. He, he, he's not just traveled to countries. I mean, he's usually lived for a sustained amount of time from the places where he's reporting, all over Central Asia, places you've probably never heard of, but you just take out a map and he guides you through it with some very funny stories. More importantly, though, a very good insight to how you get an idea of how complicated it is. How at the same time, the whole thing is 
how yeah. idiotic and feckless the whole thing is in terms of the way that the the U.S. is uh, is is following or pursuing their policy. That it, uh, ultimately, yeah, you come down to that they have an idea, but it's completely inane and stupid. Yeah, but behind it all is that. They don't care really. They'll just go with it because they're reality creators, creators, right? As, yeah. uh, as what do you call them? Third Blossom said, um, "What's his name? Carl, Carl Rove. Rove. Uh <laughs> Back in 2004, <laughs> he uh, he creates reality, you know, and a steaming pile of reality for the rest of the world. And uh, but the problem is, they just go ahead and do it anyway because they know that if it involves some kind of a, especially if it involves some kind of a war or some kind of a NATO attack, then they're going to get rich no matter what. Even if they just have a mindless, pointless war, that's money in the bank for them. So it's a mean. It also knocks out the competition. There was a report recently, well, it's an analysis really of the data that says, well, when you look at the 10 biggest oil exporting companies, uh, countries in the world, six of those 10 have either been decimated by the U.S. by direct warfare, covert warfare, or sanctions. And it keeps the competition down. It means that they can keep their one or two but that's, allies like Saudi Arabia sweet yeah. but that's the whole point. and therefore control. Yeah, and that's what, that's what uh, Pepe was saying and what we've said in the past. Uh, I think we had this kind of discussion with um, Eric Gretzer last week was that, <clears throat> yeah, Russia and China basically want to do business because they haven't been doing enough business and they've got stuff to sell. America has pretty much not a lot to sell and they're coming from, from a position of complete dominance. So... Uh, when they see Russia or China kind of wanting to do business, as Pepe was saying, then that means no bi- less business for the U.S. So the U.S. is on a loser because they have demanded and, and manipulated themselves into a position of complete dominance and, and keeping others down. And now that others are resurging, that means by, by definition the U.S. is going to lose. And that's what they don't like and that's what they're trying to stop. And it's a completely untenable position. It's not. It's not rational. And even like we were saying last week, we were Eric Tracer, It's totally against the basic, uh, <clears throat> the basic um, theory of capitalism. America is the greatest mm-hmm. capitalist country in the world, right? What What's the most healthy thing for capitalism? Competition. Russia huh. and China want to provide some competition, but America, uh, it wants to be a complete monopoly. You know. So. Um, and uh, it's difficult to be a monopoly when uh, you don't hold. Big shares of yeah, production, mining, oil, yeah. resources, fishing, food. It's as if the empire, the current empire, the U.S., is a house of cards. Yep, and it's going to fall. Built on the foundation that is the illusion and of dollar. I don't know. When the dollar goes down, the, there is nothing more. There are only the military left yep. in the U.S. Well, that's why they're ramping up. That's why they've set themselves on a on a militaristic kind of a foreign and economic policy, which yeah. is that do it or else, you know, and that's what they, they want to force the world to, to submit to. And it's really, it's impractical. And this whole reality creation thing isn't working out so well because there is an objective reality there and it's in the face of the American empire builders increasingly. So, and they don't like it, but you know what? Tough shit. Yeah. If there was a modicum of common sense, they'd realize, you know what? If we can just have basic normal relations, like economic yeah. relations with everyone else, we could still come out of this okay. Yeah, but, the, but their worst nightmare, Pepe said it, no, 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 they cannot allow this to happen because it will be not Russia that will end up isolated. It will be the U.S. Yeah. Geographic, literally, it's over there in the another ocean. <laughs> it's on its own. It's, everyone else is all together, well, more or less. And the U.S. is out there. Yeah, any going, partners that actually... Uh, Wait a minute. Any partners it could have 
on most of the South American continent, that was in South America, they've alienated largely. And so they've just put themselves in a bind there uh, here over the past, you know, over the 20th century, basically, by trying to rule the world. And it's uh, coming back to bite them in the ass and it's going to hurt. Anyway, folks, we'll leave it there for this week. We hope you enjoyed the show. Um, We'll be back next week with... Next week, we're interviewing Pierre Lascaudon. We're going to be talking about Pierre's new book, recently published by Red Pill Press. Pierre? Uh, so that'll be good. Why don't you tell, tell us the name of the book? Well, Stenzies and the Human Cosmic yes. You can tune in next week to find all about it. Till then, I'll... Bye-bye. Bye.